guests who are not new to Bruegel, actually. You've been here last year as well, so we're delighted to have you back. Uh, Luis Cubedo on my right and Gustavo Adler uh, on his right. And they're back again to present the IMF External Sector Report. This is always a very big highlight when this report comes out. We all read it with great interest, so we are delighted uh, you came back to present the results. So we are very keen to see uh, what's new this year and, and what is not new, perhaps, uh, this year and what the storyline is. Uh, and just like last year, we asked Zolt if he could have a look at the report and uh, the slides, and he will, uh, he will make uh, uh, some links to his own work on some of, this, uh, on some of these issues. Um, so I suggest we go for about 30 minutes, your, your report. Uh, I suppose both of you will present us. I will start with you, will start. Uh, Luis, you'll follow. And then Zolt, maybe 10 minutes, uh, because I would like to really engage also with our public on this issue. So. Um, uh, let me then not uh, delay you any further. Uh, can we put the slides up, please? So, Gustavo, the floor is yours. Today, uh, we're going to talk about, as, as you were saying, the, the findings of uh, the 2017 External Sector Report. Uh, and the rationale for doing this report is basically that Global imbalances uh, can point to, to risks and vulnerabilities in the, in the global economy. Uh, the global financial crisis of 2008 and 9, and in the past, the, the Great Depressions are, are basically uh, evidence of that. But not all imbalances uh, are undesirable. There are good reasons for countries to run current account deficits or, or surpluses at certain points in time, and we're going to talk about that. And so the key is to ascertain what is the undesirable and part of, of these imbalances. And this is where the IMF has a mandate. Uh, and that is the, the rationale for the report. Let me see if I manage to move this. It has a little delay. So we're going, to, we're going to cover basically five areas. Uh, we're going to talk about recent developments in terms of what has been happening with current account uh, balances over the last few years. Uh, we're going to cover uh, how we make assessments at the fund, how we think about the desirable and the undesirable part. Uh, of course, we're going to present the, our findings for 2016. The report is always with, with the lag, since the data is available with the lag as well. Uh, and then we're going to discuss the outlook, risks, and, and our policy recommendations to tackle these, these imbalances. And uh, finally, uh, we'll talk a bit about uh, some themes that are arising and, and give uh, some food for thought on, uh, on issues that are behind imbalances and, and how to tackle them. Let me see if I figure out. So when we look at the, at the standard picture of global imbalances, which is what we see here, basically current account positions for uh, surplus countries showing up uh, above the zero line and current account uh, positions of deficit countries below, we see that imbalances peaked uh, in the year 2006-2007, right before the global financial crisis. With the crisis, there was a significant narrowing of, of this imbalance, or some narrowing of these imbalances. But since then, there has been very little movement, and imbalances have remained broadly stable at an aggregate level. Uh, not only that, today's aggregate levels of imbalances are broadly are, are still significantly higher than the ones observed in the in the 90s and early 2000s. Uh, 
Um, now, even though imbalances have remained broadly stable over the last few years, the composition has changed somewhat. There has been a rotation of imbalances towards advanced economies. And what you can see in the, ch in the chart to the left are basically the current account positions in, per in percent of world GDP um, for 2013 in blue and 2016 in orange. And what you can see is that in the surplus countries at the top of the chart, uh, there was a, a clear rotation with oil exporting shifting markedly from having large surpluses to having actual deficits as when we see them as a group. And this is precisely because there was a, a very sizable uh, price shock with the fall in, in oil prices. This is more broadly uh, applicable to commodity exporters, but it's particularly stark for the case of, of oil exporters. Uh, now, this narrowing of surpluses in oil exporters came together with an increase in surpluses in, in other economies. And you can see there, for example, the case of, of Germany and Netherlands. You can see also particularly Japan, but other countries as well, uh, like Switzerland, uh, Sweden, Singapore, are, are also uh, countries where there was a, an either a persistent or an inc a significant increase in, in surpluses. Um, the other side, when we look at the deficits, uh, there, there were also marked shifts, and perhaps the most obvious ones are the case of deficit emerging markets. I actually saw a positive, in terms of positive news of, of a reduction in, in deficits, um, but this was largely offset uh, by the widening of of the deficit in the US. Of course, underlying these shifts in current accounts were two big shocks, as just I told about uh, the commodity price drop that entailed a large redistribution of income or a sizable redistribution of income away from commodity exporters and in favor of commodity importers. But also, the, uh, it was an asymmetry in the speed of recovery uh, among advanced economies, with the US basically leading the recovery, the UK to some extent as well, in opposition to, to the Euro area and, and Japan. And with that, different expectations about the speed of normalization of monetary policy, which translated into exchange rates. So the dollar, for example, what you can see to the left, appreciated markedly over these three years in the order of 18%, um, while, for example, the Euro area depreciated, um, and so uh, other, other countries. Of course, this does not reflect the latest developments since 2016, or there was some reversion of, of these trends. So the, the configuration of flow imbalances or current account imbalances uh, has been such that stock positions have also uh, widened over time. What, I mean, what we mean by this is basically, if we look at the net international investment positions, they have diverged over time, uh, certainly over the, the, the post-crisis period, because basically creditor countries have been running current account surpluses, so the creditor positions have increased over time, while the opposite has been true for debtor countries for the most part. Of course, this is not applicable to everyone. Perhaps the most clear and notable, notable exception here are some of the debtor countries in, in the euro area, which in the, in the last few years have finally started running current account surpluses, even though they are debtor. So helping to, to mitigate their debt positions, but this is mostly a, a, recent, a recent phenomenon. So this widening of, of um, stock position and the continuation of flow imbalances 
can be a source of concern. But as, as, we, as I mentioned before, there are also good reasons for countries to run current account deficits or surpluses at certain points in time. For example, countries that have a positive terms of trade shock that is expected to be temporary may wish to save that temporary windfall in income. Uh, and the, the other side of that is basically the mirror of that would be saving uh, the current accounts, a current account surplus, other things equal, of course. Countries that have negative terms of trade shock would tend to desave during periods of, of negative and temporary terms of trade shocks. Uh, other reason, for example, is uh, uh, the level of income. Countries that are richer in a well-functioning international monetary system would tend to lend to the rest of the world, which as, as other countries, poorer countries, need to accumulate capital to increase the level of income and converge towards the richer countries. So in the current account, that would mean richer countries would tend to run surpluses, the, uh, poorer countries would, would tend to run deficits. So there are good reasons, and precisely the key is to ascertain what is the excessive part as opposed to what we expect to be reasonable and desirable from, from a perspective of a well-functioning international monetary system. And this is what we have been doing at the fund, especially since 2012, with the external sector report. The report is basically a multilateral approach to thinking about these, these issues and assessing the external position of countries to make sure that when we think about countries with excess deficits, there is a, a mirror uh, set of countries with excess surpluses as, after all, current accounts and excess current accounts need to add up to zero. Um, so this approach, basically, or these assessments have two, two legs. One is a set of cross-country models, that are empirical models, that give us uh, the key numerical inputs for the assessments. And, and basically what they do is they map country characteristics and fundamentals to the current account to have a sense of what drives these current accounts and then we can think about what is desirable from these drivers and what is not. So there are country fundamentals, some of them I already explained. Uh, there are also policies because policies can have an impact on the current account, I'll explain more later. And there are also temporary factors. So these models apply either to the current account or to the real exchange rate, so we have different models. And we also have models about the, uh, that looked at sustainability of the international investment positions. So all these models basically give us a view for uh, numerical inputs to think about the assessments. But then there is a second leg that relates to judgment. Uh, of course, not, uh, models are not perfect. There, there, there is always a scope for, for improving them. And because of that, we, we acknowledge that certain country characteristics may not be properly captured in the model, and we allow uh, room for, for judgment. And this entails a long discussion at the IMF among different departments of, departments of the IMF and with country teams about when it's appropriate to deviate from the numerical input from the models. So we do this when there is a good rationale and, and we can quantify uh, this maybe a special characteristics of, of specific countries. Uh, and it's a very, very um, involved process that of course also involves the country authorities when the discussions are done in the context of Article 4 consultations. So just to give you a sense of one of the models, which is the main one we use, uh, this is a schematic uh, illustration of, of the current account model. So to the left, you can see in the green shaded area, 
basically the, the main components of the of the model that takes into account country fundamentals, like the ones that I described before, but also, for example, demographics. Demographics is a variable that has been introduced uh, in, in recent years and has been uh, given a lot of attention recently, precisely because a number of economies are going through a demographic transition of population aging, and this is affecting savings rate and with that current account positions. But at the same time, uh, this is a current account, as I mentioned before, is a relative concept. So we need to understand whether these the demographic transitions in some countries are happening at a faster pace than in, in other economies, and, and it's key to, to model this uh, within this framework. Um, among country features, for example, we have a, a number of country features. Maybe just I'll, I'll, I'll point out one of them, the reserve currency status. So countries that are issuers of reserve currencies um, tend to have uh, what is literally known as exorbitant privilege. They can basically borrow from the rest of the world at lower rates, and they, can, they tend to be able to finance larger current account deficits. So being a reserve currency issuer tends to imply that these countries can and, and uh, do uh, run uh, larger deficits. And finally, Policies, as I was mentioning before, can also affect the current account. And perhaps the, the most obvious case, a more intuitive case, is fiscal policy. For those familiar with the twin deficits uh, um, literature, there is this notion that when, you, when one moves fiscal, the fiscal policy, this tends to have an impact on aggregate demand and therefore on the current account. So a tighter fiscal policy tends to improve the current account, and the model tries to capture that. So we establish an empirical relationship between the, the fiscal balance and the current account. And then later we think about not the actual policy level of, of the fiscal balance, but what is the desirable level of the fiscal balance from the perspective of, of our country team, uh, our, our assessments. So we can think about how much of the current account gap or, or excessive deficit or surplus is coming from an undesirable policy. So with, this is the model. And then you see at the very bottom a, a, a label country-specific factor, which refers to what I was saying before, some adjustments that, that can be made outside of the model, but these are kept to a minimum to ensure that we, we use the, the numerical input as much as possible from the model. So once we, we know what the country's fundamentals are and, and define a set of desirable policies, we can, the, 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 the framework allows us to have uh, what we call a staff-assessed current account norm. That is a level of the current account that is deemed to be desirable from the perspective of fundamentals and desirable policies. And we can compare then that to the actual current account after stripping temporary factors, and that difference gives us what we call the staff-assessed current account gap. So that is the undesirable or the excessive part of the current account. Of course, that has two components. One component is the policy gap, as I was saying before. For example, if fiscal policy is too tight or too loose, there will be a contribution to the current account gap coming from that. And there is an extra part, which basically reflects factors other than fundamentals, basically distortions of some sort, that are not fully modeled in the framework. So, and we can discuss more later on. So with that, let me show you the results for 2016. So to start, I'm going to talk a bit about the current account norms. 
what I was mentioned before, water is in our, in our view, the, the level, and this is coming directly from the model, so it's excluding any adjustment outside the model. What are the levels of the current accounts that would be uh, consistent with fundamentals and, and, and medium-term desirable policies? So the first thing to point is that there is a wide range of values. And this points to the fact that it's, it, may, it is desirable uh, for some economies to run surpluses at certain points in time, while others should, should run deficit, of course. For example, um, if we look to the left, current account norms for countries like Netherlands uh, and Germany are in the order of, of five and four and a half percent of GDP, respectively. So this is saying that that is the level that we, we think is appropriate for these economies. Uh, and in, yeah, you can see the, the contribution of key factors that come from the model to explain that norm. And in, this, in these two cases, for example, demographics is very important, precisely because the demographic transition in these economies relative to other countries is more pronounced. Uh, perhaps it's worth pointing out that in the case of Netherlands, another important factor is relates to the fact that it's a financial center and this financial center, and it, this is not the only one, Switzerland, which is actually the one that with, with the highest norm, is another case. These are very, very particular cases, uh, and to a large extent, these relate to measurement issues uh, in, the, in the income balance. I'll be happy to discuss uh, later on. Sure. On, on this graph, what is the role of NFA? Is it, uh, is it equilibrating the role, or is it just, is it, does it feed into each other? Is it re reinforcing? Because they go in opposite ways. It's reinforcing. In this case, it's reinforcing. I see. Um, and and it's, if you look at the specific coefficient, basically, it's relatively uh, low. So it, it, it relates to the rate of return, but also it shows that there, there is an offsetting, an, an offsetting part of the current account to that income balance I see. effect. I see. Um, Thank you. So once we have the norm that I, that I showed before, and then we compare it to the actual current account, we, we can see what, what the, the current account gap is. And this is what is shown in this chart for both 2015 and 2016 uh, in, in white and blue, respectively. Uh, and as you can see, depending on the magnitude of these gaps, countries are labeled accordingly. So countries, for example, like Saudi Arabia in the, in the left extreme are deemed to be, are to have an external position that is substantially weaker than implied by fundamentals uh, and desirable policies. Um, and the other extreme, for example, Singapore and Thailand are deemed to have uh, an external position substantially stronger than implied or consistent by fundamental, with fundamentals and, and desirable policies. In general, what we see in this chart is that there, between 2015 and 16, movement, movements have been relatively small, so this has been broadly unchanged, with perhaps a few exceptions, including some countries in the, in the euro area, debtor countries in particular, although this is in part is related to uh, revisions in, in demographic uh, um, time series and projections. So, one, so far we have talked about the current account gap, but of course an, an immediate question is how this translates to exchange rates. 
So part of what we do in our assessment is map these current account gaps into real exchange rate gaps, what the degree of under or over valuations that currencies may have. Uh, and it, this is what is shown in this chart. Uh, what you can see in general is that there is a very clear correspondence between the two. In most cases, we believe that a country with a strong current account and excess surplus is undervalued, and the opposite is for, for countries with excess uh, deficits. But there are a few exceptions, and maybe here I'll point out to Mexico, for example. It's a case where, for 2016, uh, the currency, the peso, was deemed to be undervalued by, by about 10%, but the current account was deemed to be broadly in line with fundamentals. And this is because, basically, the peso had moved very rapidly in the context of, of uncertainty about potential trade actions by, by key trading partners. Uh, but this was uh, thought to be an overshooting, uh, and it had not been reflected yet in the current account. So normally there is this possible tension between the real exchange rate gap and the current account gap when, when the exchange rate moves very rapidly and, and the effects are, are, have not yet materialized on the current account because of lag effects. And in fact, what we have seen uh, is that since last year, indeed the, the peso has appreciated again, so it basically has moved, uh, assuming that other fundamentals have not changed, it, it has moved to the, to the right and become uh, consistent with the, with the current account gap assessment. China is another case that is interesting given its importance as a country, where 2016 was uh, thought to be, the currency was thought to be broadly in line, but the current account gap was positive, so an excessive surplus. And again, this is related to the fact that the real exchange rate, the renminbi in real terms, had appreciated rapidly in the previous years, mainly because of the appreciation of the dollar, uh, and this had not been fully reflected in, in the current account. So if you look at our current account projections going forward, there's uh, the expectations that the current account will, will weaken going further as this effect of the exchange rate appreciation materializes. So part of what the model allow us, allows us to do is to identify the role of certain policies in driving current account imbalances. So this chart precisely shows the contribution of, the of fiscal policy. So in the, in the vertical axis, we have the, the contribution of the fiscal balance gap, basically deviations from, of fiscal policy from the level that is deemed to be desirable from the perspective of the, of the domestic objectives. Um, in the horizontal axis, we see the current account gap that we have been uh, referring to. And what you see in general is a positive relationship, in part reflecting the fact that there's a coefficient that is positive in the, in the model, precisely because of the twin deficit notion. But perhaps more interesting is that if we look at countries with large current account uh, gaps, basically excess surpluses, like Thailand, Germany, Korea, in, the, in quadrant number two, we see that the fiscal Fiscal balance explains quite a bit of that. For example, in the case of Korea, uh, our assessment is that the current account is in excess surplus of about 3.5% of GDP, of which two percentage points actually come from a fiscal position that is deemed to be too tight uh, relative to a desirable level. So fiscal policy plays a key role in driving these excess surpluses. In the case of Germany and Thailand, it's the same story, although the order of magnitude is somewhat smaller. I mean, the share of the current account gap is smaller. 
Um, another interesting point to make here is that countries that are in the in quadrant number two and quadrant number four are such that fiscal policy is actually contributing to these external imbalances. This means that if fiscal policy were to be uh, changed, modified, and moving towards the desirable levels, we would see the fiscal balance gap reduced, but also the external balance is reduced. So they would move in the, in the direction of the gray lines, right? So in those cases, uh, uh, moving fiscal policy towards desirable levels would help actually reduce external imbalances. This is not the case for countries that are in quadrant one and three, and this includes China and Japan. So these are countries where fiscal policy for example, in China and Japan, is deemed to be too loose relative to a medium-term desirable level. So if these countries move their fiscal balance uh, by tightening fiscal policy over the medium term, what we would see is a movement to the right. So a resurgence of excess surpluses in these economies. So these are cases where fiscal policy is, is actually mitigating external position, excess in external positions, but in a way that is perhaps not desirable from a perspective of the position of, of the fiscal balance. At the same time, it's very important to make a point about the role of FX intervention. Um, and for this, um, we, we show a, a chart with a bit of a historical perspective. First, to in order to think about the role of FX intervention and reserve accumulation in driving imbalances, we need to think about the relation between the current account and the capital inflow. So what we show here is a set of charts, the same for different time periods. In the horizontal axis, we plot capital inflows. In the vertical axis, the current account. So countries that are plotted on the inverted diagonal line are basically countries where the current account mirrors the capital account and therefore there is no, or the financial account, uh, and there is no um, reserve accumulation. Countries that are above and to the right of the diagonal are countries that are accumulating reserves, and the opposite, of course, countries below are decumulating reserves. So if we look at the pre-crisis period, the 2004 to 2007, what we see is that many of the current account surpluses in the world were related to sizable FX accumulation, reserve accumulation. Those are the countries plotted in, in green. And this included, of course, oil exporting countries that were saving much of their windfalls in, in oil, uh, but also many Asian economies and, of course, China stands out there. When we look at the post-crisis period of 2010 to 13, we already see a shift in, in this distribution. And there are two things happening here that are not entirely obvious, but so I'll, I'll describe it uh, carefully. The first one is most of the observations have moved to the right. This means most of the countries, with the exceptions of, of course, uh, um, perhaps the, the euro area and the US, have received larger inflows during this period. This is basically a reflection of much of the quantitative easing that we saw in advanced economies that translated into inflows, inflows in the rest of the world. But the other thing is a narrowing of current account imbalances, which is what I showed also in the first slide. So lower surpluses and lower deficits. Still, we see significant degree of reserve accumulation in the green, in the green observations, uh, although less than in the past. But more important than this is when we go to the last three years from 2014 to 16, the, the picture changes 
very dramatically. And what we see is that there are very few cases where there are significant reserve accumulation. So the, the surpluses, the current account surpluses in the world today are not so much related to reserve accumulation like in the past. Uh, so, and this will become a key to think about what are the underlying policy distortions that are driving these global imbalances. I'll stop here, and maybe Luis will continue. Thank you, Gustavo. Um, I'll try to go quickly through the set of slides that are remaining so that we have time to, to take your questions and have a discussion. So, so far, Gustavo has been speaking about excess imbalances at the individual country level and trying to explain what are driving these imbalances, be it fiscal policy, be it foreign exchange intervention. What this slide tries to show is what happens when we aggregate these excess imbalances, and how do they look? If you look at the excess imbalances as a whole, you basically see them at about 0.6 or 0.7% of GDP. That's approximately about one-third of overall imbalances, implying that two-thirds of the overall global imbalances are actually desirable and actually are appropriate. It's only one-third of that total that is deemed to be inappropriate and that are excessive. So what do we see in this chart? There are two things. The first thing is that between 2013 and between 2016, there has been very little change in the excess imbalances. Okay? So first trend. The second thing, which is actually more important, is the fact that we've seen a rotation of the excess imbalances towards advanced economies and away from emerging and developing economies. So if you look at the bottom part of the slide, what we see is that that red bar, which points to the excess imbalances of the United States, we've seen that the excess imbalances of the United States have actually grown. The excess imbalances of the UK have also grown. And that has been offset by lower imbalances by key emerging economies. And by this, I mean Brazil, India, Indonesia, South Africa, and Turkey. If we look at the surpluses, what you see is higher surpluses in Japan, basically unchanged surpluses in the case, excess surpluses in the case of Germany and China, but we see actually more surpluses in some other advanced economies like Korea. So what we have seen is, again, from this picture, broadly unchanged excess imbalances of about one-third of total global imbalances, but an increased concentration of these imbalances in advanced economies. I guess the next question is, what does this mean for risks? What does it mean for policies? Let's talk quickly about the outlook. If you look at the projections that the country teams make, they basically are thinking for the key economies that are running deficits will continue to run deficits. Those that are running surpluses will continue to run surpluses, which implies that the IIP positions or the stock imbalances are projected to widen even further over time. So what does this new configuration of imbalances tell us? In the first place, the fact that we've seen persistence in excess imbalances implies that perhaps the adjustment mechanisms whereby you know, that countries can put in place to reduce those excess external positions appear to be weak. And they're weak because you have a great number of key countries that are operating without exchange rate flexibility or their own independent monetary policy. So what we see is evidence of adjustment mechanisms in the world being weak, perhaps also flaws in the international monetary system that do not allow adjustments in external positions. The second thing is that we're seeing, remember that we're seeing an excess concentration of the deficits in advanced economies, right? That means the excess 
deficit positions are now in the US, in the UK, these are countries that have reserve currency status. These are countries that are easily financed those deficits. So from a near-term perspective for the US and the UK, it's very easy for them to finance those deficits. So the deficit financing risks in the near term have come down. No longer are the deficits in emerging economies. They're no longer in the periphery of Europe. They're actually in the key countries that can, can have, you have no problem in financing them. But we should not be complacent because what we see is that with increased concentration of these deficits in some economies, that increases the risks of protectionism and protectionist actions. Okay? And I think we're already beginning to see that, both in the UK and the US. Increased concentration of deficits imply greater risk of protectionism down the road. And not only that, what we have is a situation that if we have continued complacency in terms of addressing imbalances, you have expanding stock positions that are going to haunt you and butt you down the road potentially. So if you don't address imbalances and you allow the stock positions to grow, you're going to have disruptive adjustments down the road. The question is always difficult to say, when will this happen? So what I'm trying to point out to you here is a bit of the risk. In the near term, lower risk because there's less deficit financing risk. But over time, what we're going to see is higher protectionist risks. And then second, the possibility of a disruption down the road if these stock positions remain, you know, continue to grow and remain abated, unabated. So then the question is, what do we do? And what this slide tries to do is provide a very simple framework about what excess surplus countries and excess deficit countries should try to do in terms of the policies. What we have seen in the world is that with the increased recovery that, we're, that, that is in evidence today, the output gaps of countries or the domestic gaps have come down quite a bit which means that the focus on the macro side has to be about recalibrating the macro policies. Countries that are to the left of zero here, which are countries that have excess current account deficits, are countries that should rely, should continue to rely on a commodity monetary conditions, but need to consolidate their fiscal positions. By consolidating fiscal, you basically close the current account gaps. You, you reduce the current account deficits by having an accommodative monetary position. You prevent an appreciation of real exchange rate as well. And this actually helps the recovery. So for countries to the left, they should be focused on consolidating on the fiscal side, but then also basically remaining accommodative. You have a group of countries there that don't have independent monetary policy, like in the case of France and Spain and Italy. So what should they do? If I don't have monetary policy, I cannot decide whether it will remain a commodity or not. So these countries need to rely on using fiscal policies and structural policies to engineer an internal depreciation. Okay? So this is for the countries that are in the Eurozone and that have and are deemed to, to have excess deficits. Countries to the right are those that have excess surpluses. These are countries that it's in their interest to expand their fiscal positions. That will allow them to close their, their output gaps, but they also close their external gaps as well. And these are countries like Korea, Thailand, you know. Now, Singapore, these are countries that should be moving in that direction. Japan is a different case in point. As Gustavo mentioned before, Japan's fiscal position is deemed to be too loose relative to medium-term fundamentals. It's got very large public debt. The case of Japan presents a bit of a quandary here. What do we do? What should they do? In the case of Japan, they continue to rely on accommodative monetary policy. The idea here is that you will consolidate your fiscal position and move you towards the desired fiscal level. That's going to take you away from, from your 
from your um, both your, your output gap as well as your external gap. And you need to rely much more on structural policies in order to, for you to deal with your excess uh, current account gap as well as to close your output gap. And then we have Germany. Germany is a country that does not have independent monetary policy. Its output gap is actually closed. And the question for them is, how do I reduce my excess surplus? And in the case of Germany, one of the recommendations that we're making is that you use fiscal policy in a way that will encourage an increased productivity so that you get private investment in the country and in the process you reduce your excess surplus position. Again, so it's not so much that the IMF is recommending fiscal policy to generate overheating, it's more that, that the IMF is recommending fiscal policy that is productivity enhancing and that can somehow bring in private sector investment and as a result, you know, have a reduction in, in, in the current account gap. And this recommendation is actually positive, not only for Germany, but also for the world. Let's move on. So we talked about macro policies, but the truth is that with closed output gaps, the focus really needs to be on structural reforms. Structural reforms are those that are going to get you to close your excess uh, surplus or excess deficit positions. And these need to be tailored depending on country circumstances. Of course, if you look at excess surplus countries are countries that are perhaps saving too much. They may be saving too much because their social safety nets are insufficient for precautionary <laughs> reasons they need to do that. Uh, they also may be investing too little because there may be barriers to investment. Um, and so what we're recommending is that countries lift those barriers so you get investment happening. On the other side, you have excess countries, excess deficit countries that have competitiveness issues. They need to actually tackle reforms that lower the cost of doing business, that improve the workings of the labor markets, and that also that boost savings. And one of the reasons why savings is low in some of these countries is because they actually have the opposite problem as the surplus countries. Their pension systems are far too generous. So let's move on. These are the two recommendations. Um, I think at this point, I can quickly mention some of the themes that we touched upon the report. The first thing is that we looked at the implications of trade restriction on imbalances. What we find is that actually trade restrictions can improve global imbalances, but they come at a huge cost with regards to global growth. And this is one of the things that we looked at. And in fact, the impact on imbalances are only going to be small and temporary as well. So trade restrictions are clearly not the way to go forward, as alluded by some um, advanced, key advanced economies. A second thing that we looked at is, well, we see this, this trend that we have persistence and concentration of surpluses in advanced economies. And we wanted to understand how does this compare to history. And what we find is that the concentration of surpluses in advanced economies, that's the chart on the left, is a very new feature of the global economy before the persistent surpluses were actually in financial centers and oil exporters in the past years. Now they're much more concentrated in advanced economies. And we wanted to understand why that was the case. And we wanted to look at what role did the corporate sector play in that process. And so what you look here is you have two charts. One of the first charts is that we see that surplus countries tend to invest more, but they save much more. And when you look at, the, at what is driving the difference in the current account between surplus and deficit countries, what we see is that red bar that is quite consistent and over time, and that is corporate savings. So you see in surplus countries relative to deficit countries, corporations saving far more. So the question is, why are they saving more? Is there something about corporate governance that may be leading to that? Is there something about dividend policy, taxation, 
that may be forcing these corporations to be saving more. So this is an area where we plan to do more work, and I think that the international community should, should focus their efforts in better understanding. Thank you very much, Ms. Desai. Thank you very much, Ms. That was very, very interesting. Lots of questions, I'm sure, uh, to discuss further, but uh, not before we ask Azov to give us his take on the, on the new report. Thank you. Thank you very much. <clears throat> I already had the pleasure of, and the privilege of, of discussing uh, the report last year that I, that I enjoyed and also <coughs> this year's report I think is, is very exciting and have many, many interesting, interesting uh, graphs and, and conclusions. Uh, what I sought to do is to, <coughs> to highlight three issues which are to some extent complement <coughs> what uh, uh, <coughs> Luis and Gustavo uh, have, have just presented. Uh, I also prepared some slides, but until they arrive, <coughs> just let, let me start. So the, so the three issues I would like to discuss is uh, <coughs> intra-euro issues. And the second one is devaluation of foreign assets and liabilities. And the third one is the capital account, which, which has a very strong role in some parts of Europe. Now, <coughs> for intra-euro imbalances, I I just borrowed a chart from your, your very nice presentation, uh, which shows the real exchange rate gap on the horizontal axis and the current account gap on the vertical axis. Now, the current account gap is based on cyclically adjusted current accounts, so it's, so it's no cyclical, in principle, at least, <laughs> that is no cyclical issue here. <clears throat> and if you look at this chart, this is, I would say, really, really frightening. Because what you see is that basically in 2016, so this is 2016, the German and the Netherlands I highlighted with, with, uh, with these uh, red uh, circles uh, are relatively seriously undervalued. The Netherlands is almost by 10%, Germany is, is, is by 15%. This is on the top left. On the, on the bottom right, you can see Spain, Italy, and France having relatively strong overvalued, around 10%. I mean, Belgium is also there. I have to say a little bit to, to, my, to my surprise, but Spain, Italy, and, and, and France probably share some, some, some similarities. And I think this is, this is really frightening because, as I said, this is cyclically adjusted, so there's no <coughs> relation to the, to the current cycle of the boom. And there is basically a 20 30% gap uh, in, in terms of real exchange rate between Germany and, on the one hand, and, and France. And I mean, as you say, I mean, uh, these countries don't have standalone monetary policy. So the ECB looks at the aggregate, and the aggregate is probably probably somewhere in the middle, in, in in close to zero. But if this is correct, then this is really frightening because basically a 30% real exchange rate adjustment would be needed inside the euro area. Uh, and I have to say, I. Uh, and this is a small criticism of, of your report. I fail to see from, from your report how we can engineer it. Now, you say for the deficit, you know, so for Germany, you say, yeah, for, for fiscal policy. But again, um, I mean, you show that, that um, fiscal policies only have a relatively much smaller role in the excess current account surplus than, for example, in the, in the case of Korea. Uh, but it's not, and also it's not very likely that Germany will embark on a, on a fiscal expansion. <coughs> you said for the, for the deficit countries, <coughs> you said uh, fiscal and structural policies to uh, engineer internal depreciation, uh, <coughs> which seem to work in, uh, in Greece, <coughs> but at the cost of, of, of a very 
<coughs> deep recession and a very large fall in, in employment. I mean, <coughs> both the economy collapsed by one quarter and the employment also collapsed by more than more than 20%. And then it was possible to engineer a, a very, very large internal depreciation. But for these relatively larger countries like France and Italy, uh, <coughs> uh, I don't really see how an internal uh, devaluation, uh, internal adjustment in the in the in the currency would, would work. I also suggest for Germany to use fiscal policy to increase productivity, and you said that is in principle advice to all countries of the world. I mean, certainly every country wants to achieve higher productivity. Um, so certainly this should also apply to to Spain, Italy, Italy, and Italy and France. So overall, I, I again, if this picture is correct, which is I have trust that it is, then it's really, really frightening. And my, my question to you is that if indeed this internal adjustment will not happen, because I, I would fail to see an internal adjustment in Italy and France to the scale that we observed in, in Greece, then what are the consequences for the for the Eurozone as a whole? So would it be depressed, depressed growth in uh, Spain, Italy, France, and Belgium for, for many, many years, in decades to come? Uh, would Germany eventually face an, an overheating? Because the ECB is targeting certainly the average, and the average is, at least on the, on the real exchange rate, should be, should be close to zero. On the current account, maybe it's a bit tilted toward upwards, but it's also relatively, relatively close to zero. So, so my question is, is indeed, what, what are the consequences of, of that? This was one issue. I promised three issues. The second issue is, uh, Evaluation of foreign assets and, and liabilities. And here I just show a very simple chart for two countries. I mean, these are the two extreme countries, so not all countries. I like Canada and, and the UK. But these two countries really give very nice examples what might happen with, with revaluation. Now, because what you see here, you can see here the current account balance as a share of GDP in, in, in red, and the net international investment position, again, as a share of GDP in blue. And it's a bit more complicated, but, but basically the change in the current, so the current account balance reflects uh, uh, the, the financial account, which means uh, um, net uh, acquiring of foreign li liabilities are in the form of debt or equity. Uh, so when, let's say, the current account balance is, is positive, you expect to see an increase in the net international investment position. When the current account balance is negative, you would expect a fall in the net international investment position. But what you see here in the most recent period, in the last three or four years, in the case of both countries, that they had a negative current account, but see a huge increase in the net international investment position. There's also a host of different measurement issues, um, but most likely, I mean, these countries were able to benefit from very, very large returns on, on their net positions. Uh, to a large extent could be due to revaluation gains. Uh, and, and you can see the order of magnitude. I mean, the UK went from minus 20% to plus 25. So basically a shift of 45% of GDP in a matter of two years. I mean, it's, it's enormous. But also for Canada, it went from minus 20 to, to plus 10, 20. Now it came back to plus 10. Again, a, a 40, 30% of GDP shift in the net position again with a negative current account in a matter of, of, of four years. So, so indeed, uh, there could be very, very large changes uh, due to valuation. Now, I, I have a brief chat with Luis uh, before the, the seminar, and he, he told me that they are also working hard 
on, on these issues and, and they have a couple of projects in place. Uh, because you know, one question is that whether you treat revaluation as a kind of random process, which can be positive or negative, and uh, on average it, it might be zero uh, or not. And again, it's, I think, worthwhile to look at Canada because it shows that for Canada this is certainly not. You can also see a similar, similar rise here in the early 1990s when, again, they went from minus 50 to, to plus 10, again, with a more or less balanced or even negative uh, uh, current account position. And that sudden shift, again, a 40% of GDP shift in asset position, net position, proved to be rather, rather persistent. And now they added another, another 40%. So these changes can be really, really huge. Now, we also, also work on, um, on, um, on, um, on these revaluation effects with, with my colleague, Pia Huttel. And I, I just show you two charts. <coughs> Two charts differs in terms of the time period. So the, this chart is from 2000 to 2007, and the next chart will show 2007-2016. And this chart shows on the horizontal axis the initial net international position, so in this case, the year 2000. <coughs> and on the vertical <coughs> axis, you can see an indicator that we call evaluation gain. Uh, I don't want to elaborate it uh, too much detail. We have a paper in which we <coughs> in which we will, we, will, we will discuss it. But what you generally see here is a kind of negative relationship. So, so countries which have negative positions tend to gain, uh, again, during this seven-year period. And the countries which had which positive uh, position tend to lose. And very interestingly, the same applies to the more recent period from 2007 to 2016. Now, these are some, some big countries here. For example, China is here, made a huge losses. Saudi Arabia made huge losses. Switzerland, huge losses. Japan, huge losses. Germany, some losses. So interesting, the US also made some losses, which was primarily due to the um, uh, increase in value of the, of the US dollar, because <coughs> U.S. liabilities are mostly denominated in U.S. dollars. I mean, almost nothing is in, in, in foreign currency. While U.S. assets are denominated in foreign currency, they typically invest a lot in, in, in equity. So when the dollar depreciates, the U.S. liabilities do, don't change measured in U.S. dollar, but the assets, the value of the assets falls. So during the, this period from 7 to 16, the U.S. acted as a kind of absorber of uh, of um, of shocks or, or <coughs> absorbing some, some asset losses. Um, but the, but the, the bigger picture I would like to emphasize that again in this I mean, more recent period, um, you see the tendency, uh, certainly the, the relationship is not perfect. <coughs> For example, here you can see Portugal, Hungary, Spain with relatively large net negative position in 2007 and basically they made no gains. But many other countries made big gains. Again, Norway is an exception with a large asset stock and, and, and big gain. So certainly there are exceptions, very important exceptions. But overall, I think it's very interesting to notice that these revaluation changes tend to be tend to be stabilizing. And uh, well, I, I look, we don't we are not able to give an answer to, to this. I mean, certainly one possible answer could be that if you have large assets, then you face the risk of of higher risk than if you have lower assets. So. So the larger positions carry a larger risk of, 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 of losing, losing value, but I'm, uh, I don't really know the real answer. So I, I look forward to, 
to seeing your your research when when, when it will be ready. But I think, but it's still, it's important to point out that these revaluation changes tend to be stabilizing, and this also has an implication on the sustainability of current account balances because. <clears throat> If you can ex ex expect some some support from from revaluation, then uh, it may <coughs> also put your current account deficit in a different light. And the third issue, which is <coughs> particularly important for for uh, European Union countries, <coughs> is the role of the of the capital account. Now here I, I just put the, the very basic balance of payment identity, which says that the current account CA plus the capital account KA. <coughs> equals the financial account uh, and, and uh, the so-called net errors and, and omissions. And in, for most countries, the capital account is very, very small. But this is not, uh, and the capital accounting includes basically capital transfers, and most EU capital transfers are there. There are also some uh, uh, non-produced, non-financial assets, like, I don't know, logos and internet domains and, 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 and a couple of, couple of related things. But that, that part tend to, be, tend to be small. But especially in, in some EU countries, the capital account is, is rather large. <clears throat> And if the capital account, for example, you take example of EU transfers, let's say when Poland receives money from, <clears throat> from the European Union budget, then this is a, a grant, a transfer, so it doesn't create a liability, so the European Union doesn't acquire a claim on Poland, but certainly that transfer can, be, can, can finance the current account deficit and it can help to support it. So we <clears throat> created a, a simple chart. Uh, <clears throat> This chart shows those countries in the European Union which had the largest net negative international positions in 2007. And you can see four, four uh, time series or four indicators here. So the, the red, red circle is the change in the net international investment position from 2007 to 2016. As a share of GDP, so also <coughs> The way GDP change also has an impact. I mean, in Greece, GDP contracted by 25%. So certainly, that had also a big impact. But, but we, for the time being, disregard from the impact of, of GDP. We simply, simply express everything as a, as a GDP. Then you can see this, this darker blue, the, the cumulative current account. <coughs> the yellow is the cumulative um, um, capital account. <coughs> and uh, this light blue is the cumulative, cumulative novel. <coughs> and again, you can see in, in some countries, <coughs> uh, like uh, Hungary, uh, my, my home country, that you know we had overall in this period uh, some current account surplus in overall, but with a much, much bigger uh, <coughs> capital account and very small revaluation changes as, as I already showed. So overall, this big improvement in Hungary's net international position was a <coughs> quite significant ex uh, extent to, to what, to the, to the capital flows. I mean, <coughs> Bulgaria is even more interesting where they had a continued large current account deficit of almost 30% of GDP. Uh, they had inflows, Bulgaria joined a bit later than, than um, in 2007, so uh, the, the arrival of EU funds uh, started a bit, a, bit, a bit later, but it was also almost 10% of GDP and had a huge, huge gain. So overall, the improvement in the net international position uh, uh, was completely the opposite way than what <coughs> current accounts would have predicted. Now, as I said, uh, basically the, 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 the capital account is important only for this subset of countries. I mean, Czech Republic receives little and, and some other countries receive a little. But I think it's also very <coughs> useful to, to keep in mind that 
capital accounts in the case of uh, some European Union countries can be also a very important factor beyond valuation changes to help stabilize the net international investment position. And certainly, the way we look at current account imbalances and whether they are at equilibrium or below or above uh, has a major, I mean, should have a, so the, the sustainability of the external, the stock position should have a major influence on how we view whether current accounts are sustainable or not. So let me stop here and thank you for your attention. Thank you very much. I'd like to give you the opportunity to say to respond to this, and in particular to this uh, to this concern that is also raised of, of the discrepancy in the exchange rates in the overvaluation. That the numbers are big, and fiscal policy, which is one of your recommendations for some of the countries. I mean, we also have fiscal constraints in the euro area, so it would be quite difficult to imagine the fiscal tool being the one that's going to drive this. Now, if the alternative lure is structural reforms, then I think we're in for a very big trip here, and. Um, I'd like to hear your views on and what does that mean for the future in terms of the sustainability of the imbalance and settling the euro area, which is of course what we're interested about here. Uh, and then, and then we'll ask we'll ask our, our audience to uh, to engage with us. Luis, Gustavo. Yes, um, yeah, let me try to answer the the question with regards to the intra-euro area mm. imbalances that exist. Um, I think it's important to to first point out that. Uh, we are of the view that the euro area as a whole is broadly imbalanced. In 2016, probably they were slightly undervalued or slightly stronger, but more or less broadly imbalanced. And what this means is that the excess surpluses in Germany as well as in the Netherlands were offset by the excess deficits in other countries like France, Italy, and Spain. So from the euro area as a whole, and what we felt is that they were broadly imbalanced maybe slight undervaluation of the euro, only slight. I think one of the important things is to understand, you know, how have current accounts evolved in, in the euro area? And what has it meant for growth in the euro area as well? So what we have seen is since the global financial crisis is that a lot of the adjustment by the periphery has come through import compression, which has meant also lower growth in the euro area as a whole. And that's how you know, the countries in the periphery have been able to reduce their excess imbalances, which they have come down quite a bit, uh, reduce their current account deficits, are now, now running surpluses. If we look at countries that were actually running surpluses before, they continue to run surpluses, and in fact, those surpluses are either higher or unchanged. So a lot of the adjustment that has taken place in the euro area has come in some ways at the expense of growth. We've seen import compression or demand compression in the periphery. So the question is, how do we address the intra-euro area imbalances in a way that is growth friendly? And our view and our recommendation is that there has to be greater efforts by countries that are running excess surpluses. In this case, Germany and the Netherlands, they need to find means to stimulate demand. Fiscal policy, I agree, it's not the only tool, and it could work and it, it may help, but there are bigger issues when you don't have independent monetary policy, you do need to work through structural efforts. Um, and I do think that there has to be a bigger conversation about what those structural efforts should be. How do I engineer an internal appreciation or internal depreciation? What tends to work and what doesn't? Why are corporates in, in Germany and in the Netherlands saving so much? Um, are there issues in their own capital markets that are preventing, you know, uh, for example, that, that are forcing them to keep to have such high cash balances. 
Um, so I think, again, um, when it comes down to structural reforms, it's not uh, our recommendation. Um, you know, we're looking at things as a whole uh, globally. I think it's the onus is really on the country teams, on the authorities, and uh, to identify what may be those restrictions, what may be those distortions, to try to attend them. And in this report, we basically highlight broadly the direction in which they need to move. We do think that there should be more investment in Germany. And there may be restrictions to investment. There may be restrictions to investment in the services sector. The services sector could be opened more. But again, when it comes down to discussing what Germany should do, you know, what we normally say, well, let's rely on, on our Germany team and the advice that they provide in the Article 4. Uh, and, you know, that we see that discussion being much more tailored and uh, much more specific. Um, so that, that answers the, the issue of your area imbalances and what should, we, what, what should be done. Again, we agree that fiscal policy is, is not the only answer. Structural policies are important. And on the structural side, yes, w those details need to, um, you know, they, they need to come out. And, and, and we're hoping to provide in our report some new areas where, in our view, more thought should be given. And I do think that understanding corporate savings is going to be key going forward. <coughs> Well, may, may, I, may I pick on this point? Because, I mean, we will discuss this point more extensively, I'm sure. But if the risk of a sudden stop is the motivator for the risk for the adjustment of the deficit countries on, on, on the debtor countries, what is the motivator in, the, uh, in those countries that have got excessive surpluses? I can think of, of two motivators for their own good. Um, I think one of them has to do with the fact that what is the opportunity cost of investing mm -hmm. abroad? If I am, if I'm not to, if I'm investing abroad, what am I missing by not investing domestically? And I do think that for many of the surplus countries, uh, there should be a greater realization that maybe the rates of return to domestic investment um, could be greater than than having them abroad. And we talked about these negative valuation effects yeah. associated with surplus economies. So I think this would be a good way of, of, yeah. of you know, highlighting this particular issue, um, looking at where are you better off investing and putting your resources? Um, I do think that um, there may be good reasons why you want to expand your demand domestically as well. It's going to allow you to, to actually grow at a faster rate as well and improve living standards. So I do think that um, even though there's not an urgency to move for surplus countries because they're not facing that risk, um, I do think that there is there are merits both on the rate of return side as well as on the growth angle. Right. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah. Perhaps yeah. I would add that uh, in, in some cases, for example, pension schemes may discourage uh, elderly participation in the labor force, and because that may affect savings uh, savings rate. So they, they may have an, an impact on saving investment decisions, and and, uh, mm. and this may I impose uh, on on people basically certain, certain savings rates that they, they may prefer not, not to have. Uh, so from an yeah. individual point of view, maybe uh, yeah. also uh, desirable to move in that regard. But going back to, to the previous question about imbalances, perhaps I would add, because you were very concerned about the differential in, in the, the needed um, price adjustment, right? The relative price adjustment yeah. needed between, that you were pointing out to Germany versus France. Uh, I, I would ar argue that when we think about real exchange rate gaps in the chart that you were showing, 
we think of them also as conditional on other policies. So given other policies, this is the amount of adjustment that will be needed. But there are margins in, or dimensions in which you can move, like the one I was saying, that may affect saving decisions, also with some impact on, on, on the real exchange rate, but not necessarily through that being the main mechanism. So there are ways of affecting savings and investment without necessarily a one-to-one -one relationship to the real exchange rate. So when you think along those lines, this is telling us that it's not necessarily that you need a real price adjustment of that order of magnitude, but it, they, it needs to be complemented with structural reforms or, or and policy reforms that affects um, saving investment decisions. Perhaps on, on valuations, I mean, as you pointed out, uh, this is an area where we have been doing some, some work, and uh, I'm, I'm happy to, to see that you are too. And in the same, you're finding uh, results in the same direction, in the sense that valuation changes tend to have an, an important offsetting or, or um, stabilizing role of the NFA position. Um, I would say there is, of course, the, the, the case of the US that uh, it hasn't been. It hasn't been like that, and perhaps it's the, it's the, uh, the main exception where we have seen uh, valuation effects adding to the current account deficit over the last few years at least. Uh, and, and this is something that I think we, we need to, to understand better. I think an important aspect here is to, to recognize that there are issues related to the statistical treatment of certain items yeah. in, in current accounts in the income balance. Uh, especially with regard to, to financial centers that tend to have very large gross positions in assets and liabilities. Uh, and, and so in some cases their income balance uh, may reflect the way certain, certain uh, items are, are treated. Um, so some of those valuation changes may simply be a statistical uh, recording, reflecting the way that things are, are recorded. So something to keep in mind for, for some countries. Mm. Um, of course, the, the, the broader issue is if there is evaluation, a stabilizing role of evaluation changes, how do they come about? What is the mechanism through which this, this operates? And in general, I think it's related to the point that we were making that when we look at the gross uh, assets and liabilities position, especially in advanced economies, liabilities tend to be denominated in local currency and assets in foreign currency. This, this means that countries that have uh, appreciations tend to have negative valuation changes. And this is precisely what you see in general when you have current account surpluses. So countries with surpluses tend to see eventually, it may not happen immediately, but eventually they see an, a real appreciation of the currency yeah. that have a negative valuation effect. So there is a, a, an offsetting role through that. But there is also, of course, an asset price effect uh, coming especially through, through, through equity. So countries that are, are growing fast and in part associated with large current account surpluses as they see equity prices go up, and that entails basically a negative valuation change uh, to the extent that many of these equities are held by, by non-residents. But, but, but if I may, rather than calling the, uh, the valuation effect a stabilizing factor, I think I would prefer Lewis's term, which is the opportunity cost, because that effectively is the opportunity cost for the creditor countries, right? So if your currency is going to appreciate, you're going to have a negative valuation effect eventually, and that would be the opportunity cost of investing, of not investing domestically. To the right. extent that there is a predictable component to it? I, yes. I, I, I mean, if it turns out that way, uh, as, as old Scruff was indicating, then I hardly want to call this a stabilizing factor. I mean, it's just more the opportunity cost rather than, um, or not. Yes. I think that's a, that's a fair yeah. well, I don't know if it's fair, but... Yeah. Uh, Okay, um, sorry, I interrupted you. Uh, did you want to? Uh... Uh, I think on, on the last point about the, the capital account, 
Uh, I think it's a very it's a very valid point. Uh, I think in general, when we look at our sample of countries, uh, it's not a systemic issues, but certainly important for certain countries in, in within the, the European Union, and it's worth considering. In a way, when we think about this, you can also think that there is a, another layer of this, which is whether current account deficits are financed by equity or, or they create sure. liabilities. So it's another aspect of this, perhaps uh, of second order relative to capital transfers, uh, but, but somewhat related is about how you finance these deficits. Of course, I think there is another important component when we think about transfers uh, in terms of whether we think about them as temporary or, or, or permanent transfers because the, the, the reaction of, 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 of the receiving country would very much depend on that. And it was interesting, if I saw correctly in the chart, in most cases uh, we see um, the current account having the opposite sign of the of a capital transfer, suggesting that maybe in many cases it's perceived as, yeah. a, as a permanent transfer and therefore spent uh, almost entirely, which could be consumption on investment, but spent. Uh, and, and only in a couple of cases you, you would see them in the same direction. So I think it's worth thinking about how these are perceived, whether as temporary or permanent as well. Okay, thank you very much. But uh, let me open the floor for uh, questions. So there's two questions here. Um, please, yeah. Then the gentleman, then Marek, yeah. Let's take, uh, let's collect some sure. Sure. Yes. I would, I would like to ask you about the to elaborate a bit on the policy recommendations for the US, not just because it's the world's biggest economy, but because the, the, the external position of the country has been subject to such an intense uh, political debate. In, in your opinion, is, is the US uh, external position imbalanced enough to justify the intensity of the debate? And what needs to be done to, to fix it? You said that the protectionist policies aren't the answer, but what's the answer? If any, may, maybe there is no need to do anything specific. Maybe the world needs a, a, a buyer of last resort. And my second question, if I'm allowed, uh, what do, do you have any uh, indications about the impact of Brexit on the external position of the UK? I mean, the first developments like uh, the, the depreciation of the sterling, I mean, the, the prospect of introducing tariffs Maybe they will actually help the UK like fix any imbalances. Maybe it's positive at the end of the day. Could you take the questions here at the front? Kurt uh, Association of German uh, SMEs. My question uh, comes a bit back to your question, uh, Maria. Um, do I interpret you uh, correctly? Uh, the fact that you do not use euro area as a whole in your graphs, etc., is that imbalances are too big within the euro uh, area. Now, if you read uh, the speech of President Juncker of 13 September, the aim will be to reduce these imbalances. <laughs> uh, this means in five or ten years, uh, you might use euro area and no longer Germany and Netherlands, etc. Am I right? Marek Dombrowski-Bruggen, I have rather comments and then question. Um, coming from the fact that the um, uh, world changed dramatically over the last, let's say, 30, 40 years, and uh, uh, before we didn't have free capital movement, and, and of course, uh, let's say, 1970s or 1980s, especially when we analyze developing countries, uh, if um, country run, uh, current account deficit more than I would say one to three percent. It was already 
point of concern and that the, uh, it was evidently caused by, by domestic policy, trade policy, competitiveness, monetary policy, fiscal policy, and there was question how to finance it on capital account side. Now we know that, that in many cases, uh, current account is driven by changes in capital account. For example, I think many emerging market economy experience in the last decade or two decades that for example, consequences of quantitative easing in US, in the Eurozone, in Japan, on how they affected the size of uh, direction of capital flows. And then uh, individual current accounts or individual countries had to adjust. And uh, given this change, I must say that, that on the one hand, I appreciate very much uh, in your analysis that um, analytical framework change because I would say uh, 20 years or even 10 years ago usually uh, current account imbalances were, were seen as something warning. Now we try to calibrate what is the right level or what is excess level. I cannot go into details because I don't know the details of the model but uh, but uh, I, I find that, that you take uh, account on many important factors like, like issuing international currency, like, like um, uh, de demographic developments, meaning various factors which uh, impact the saving rate, etc. But nevertheless, I still think that we must go further in terms of, of um, I would say, changing analytical framework. And let me give one, uh, just uh, two examples. One is the, when you speak about international investment position. And that is almost automatically using the notion of creditor country and debtor country. I think that is extremely confusing and misleading, even for economists, but uh, not saying about non-economists, because this implicitly assumes that the, uh, this aggregate international investment position is result of some sovereign lending of borrowing. Why we know that this is largely effect of uh, uh, private capital movement, and large part of which is, is uh, uh, equity, not, not necessary borrowing. Not saying about factors which George mentioned, like uh, uh, revaluation effect, or for example, in case of EU countries, um, uh, uh, official transfers from EU budget. And, um, I think that one of the hidden assumptions, which are, is not uh, always uh, clear articulated, is assumption about fixed residence of capital. So if FDI came from country A to B, it ultimately belongs to country A. At some point, it must come back. This is a sort of the, I think, underlying assumption behind this kind of analysis. And uh, we know that it's not always the case. And I think that sh it should be some way reflected in, in narrative about, about uh, uh, imbalances. And then the another question is the risk. Um, when we look for various stories of, of uh, uh, balance of payment crisis, because I understand that the ultimate problem is the risk of balance of payment crisis, we see that uh, we have some cases when, when countries can run uh, um, 
persistent current account deficit and, and nothing happens. And then we have also cases, I think Russia is the best case of it, a country which never had current in post-transition history, never had current account deficit. It, it experienced at least three uh, balance of payments crises, 1998-9, and recently 2014-15, mainly driven by, not by non-residents, but by residents' behavior. So, so um, again, I think that this, this requires some, some adaptation of analytical framework. Thank you, Marek. Uh, is, there, is there any uh, last question before we return to the... Uh, Stefan? Here. Sit in the middle, yeah. <laughs> um, I've already asked you a lot of questions in the past, uh, but I... Can you introduce who you are? I'm Stefan Sogner from the European Commission. I also work on this kind of... Uh, I'm working on derivatives of your work, which I greatly appreciate, and try to draw conclusions for the Commission. Um, one, so my job is to analyze your report very carefully, and one thing is, that I noted is that uh, your current account gap for Italy and France are pretty similar in as percent of their domestic GDP, uh, but the policy recommendations for France and Italy are quite different in some sense. And in the French policy recommendations, there's a lot more emphasis on wages, whereas in the Italian ones, there's a lot more emphasis on structural reforms. Mm. Of course. As a European Commission person following this, these topics, I mean, it seems a bit... Uh, it's understandable where we're coming from. Italy had a quite strong demand adjustment. I think demand per capita is now at the level of 1996 or 1997. Um, whereas France had almost had roughly, I mean, a bit slow demand growth, but no real dramatic demand adjustment. So the Italian current account went from minus one, minus two to plus three now. According to your current account gap, it should increase further, which would mean breaking on the demand for some time. In the French case, it's more, uh, I mean, the, the assessment did not change. The, the big question is why did the current account, why wasn't the current account gap for Italy much higher in the past reports, when Italy still had a much lower deficit, and why is the policy recommendation for Italy different from that of France? Mm. Thank you, Stefan. If you have the time, maybe we can uh, give the floor back to you now. Um, for your final um, thoughts. Good. I'll, I'll take a few of the questions, yeah. perhaps on the US and the UK and your area, and maybe allow Gustavo to, to comment on some of the points that were made about risk, about um, you know, the importance of the capital account. And, um, so maybe starting with the US, uh, our assessment is that the, the US current account deficit is moderately larger than warranted by fundamentals, by about one, one and a quarter percent of GDP. So it has an excess deficit. In terms of the recommendations that we're asking the US to make is that they try to narrow that excess deficit uh, through a process of fiscal consolidation that is very gradual, and that they also only withdraw monetary accommodation as inflation developments warrant. So for the US, really, the recommendation is fiscal consolidation in a very gradual way so it's not a detriment to, of growth. But then also, importantly, to embark in structural reforms that especially improve the skills of its labor force, okay? So, and, in, and as a result, productivity. Now, the question that you have is, you know, is all the fuss really something that is uh, justified? 
And I think there's a lot of politics involved here, and I'm not in a position to comment about that. Um, so, but one thing that is important to keep in the back of our minds is not so much that the current account deficit is only 1% higher, but that its stock position has actually now increased quite substantially. So the IIP position of the United States is now in the order of minus 40% of GDP, roughly, and it could continue to grow if these imbalances are not addressed. So I do think that, you know, um, in terms of the advice, again, it's moving with fiscal consolidation, gradual removing, removal of monetary accommodation and structural reforms. Um, is it a big deal? It probably is not, but it should be addressed over time. Um, on the case of the UK and Brexit, what we've seen is the depreciation of the sterling that has been positive. Our view was that the UK's external position was, was too weak relative to its fundamentals. So we've seen a depreciation and that has been positive. We haven't seen necessarily the depreciation feed into yet the current account. So the deficit is only slightly smaller. And our view is that with that depreciation that has taken place, we would see the current account deficit fall over time. Now the question is that how does Brexit affect your view of fundamentals and the norm? And that is, that, that is difficult to ascertain because that will depend on how the process is conducted and the extent to which that might affect potential growth down the road. So again, Brexit will have an impact on the norm to the extent that will affect some of the fundamentals that are driving the current account. So again, you know, th this is on your point about, about Brexit. Um, on the euro area, our focus is we do believe that yes, as, as euro area as a whole is broadly in line with fundamentals and so is the euro. We do not, we, we do have consultations at the euro area level, but we do so with the country levels because countries are really the sovereign here. You don't have a fiscal union, you don't have a banking union, so you need to have these bilateral discussions about policies as a result. When we go to Germany, we don't discuss monetary policy. So again, for that particular reason, we continue to focus on you know, some of these bilateral discussions because we don't have a framework where you have a fiscal union or a banking union. And so if that is to change, then probably our approach and uh, our engagement with Europe will probably evolve and will change accordingly. So um, I think there was a question about the advice on France and, and in, the case, in the case of Italy and um, I think our views there. I think the fact that um, in both cases we, we see that the current account is, um, should be larger or is too weak relative to fundamentals. And so the advice there is in absence of independent monetary policy is that you try to engineer an internal depreciation. The a focus on, on France was really on wages and, um, and, and that is because unit labor costs in France have been basically very steady. They have not come down as you have seen in the case of Spain, for example, that have done a tremendous job of bringing down the unit labor cost. Um, so I think that was the emphasis then. It's not to say that it's not important for Italy, um, and I'm not you know, well nuanced on the details of both countries, but again, I think the advice for both is address these imbalances through a process of, you know, through reforms that may engineer some type of internal um, depreciation. There is an issue about the norm for Italy, and I think this is something that we have discussed uh, there are some that believe that the norm is too high and that indeed ex you know, Italy's external position is not problematic. But uh, this is for a discussion down the road and this is something that we'll look into more carefully. Um, okay, I think there was a question about whether 
current account imbalances may reflect uh, the behavior of the capital or the financial account with the liberalization of capital accounts over, over time, over the last few decades. Uh, and I think it's certainly it's the case uh, if you think about uh, a world in which um, countries can uh, smooth out shocks, as I was referring to before, for example, in the case of transfer shocks. In the past, with closed capital accounts, uh, basically temporary uh, shocks in terms of trade would not be uh, would not have been able to, to be uh, um, smooth out, uh, forcing countries to have balanced current accounts. With the greater financial integration, I think that has allowed countries to, to basically borrow and lend at different points in time, and therefore the, the international monetary system to work better. At the same time, we can think that precisely because of that, uh, the, the, the distortions, the underlying distortions in many of these economies have also been magnified, because now distortions to saving and investment uh, lead to, to the extent that there is financing from abroad or leads to lending uh, can, can, be, can be amplified. So I think we have both aspects of this, that the fa increased financial integration probably has facilitated a better functioning of the international monetary system, um, but at the same time may have uh, exacerbated the, the, the effect of, of distortions. Um, related, I think there was a, a question about whether we should think about countries as creators and debtors, or we should go deeper. Uh, and I think uh, we, we agree uh, that there are different layers at uh, which one can, can look at this. Uh, and an example that I like to, to give is, is about emerging markets. Um, because in emerging markets, what we have seen, interestingly, over the last decade or so, is that valuation changes have changed the way they operate. So in the past, many of these emerging markets had liabilities in foreign currency. So uh, any time they were faced with a negative shock and their currency depreciated uh, in order to stabilize the current account, there was a, a negative valuation change operating and, and worsening their, their IIP. Uh, that is no longer the case for the majority of, of emerging markets, or at least the, the systemic ones. So now both effects are operating in the same direction. They, were, they are hit by a bad shock. Their currencies depreciate, helping to stabilize their flow, so their current account position, but also helping improve their IIP because valuation effects now go in the opposite direction. I mean, they are, they are positive valuation effects from depreciation of their currencies. However, in many cases, and this is the, the second layer, we still see uh, a balance sheet effects with pervasive effects at the, at the sectorial level. So in some sectors, in some economies, they're still borrowing in foreign currency and there may be uh, pervasive effects coming from, from movements in the exchange rate. So I think there is value in thinking about at an aggregate level, what is the aggregate effect, but also vulnerabilities at, at the sectorial level. And this is something we have discussed, not in this report, but in, in, the, in, last, in the previous report. Um, and related, I think there was the question about uh, whether we should think uh, about financial stability concerns only from the perspective of the current account, and I think there was an example given uh, that uh, there are cases of sudden stops associated with actual current account surpluses rather than deficits, and I think it's, it's right to point out to that. I think the current account is one dimension of risks that we, we consider, but it's not the only dimension of risks. 
there may be many other dimensions that are relevant that determine the likelihood of, of a sudden stop. And with that, I'll stop. Okay, well, thank you very much. Thank you both for uh, for very a very interesting discussion and for presenting the report. A lot of different insights. I think we will invite you next year to see what, <laughs> what the development has been. And uh, Jolt, did you have a final comment that you wanted to make? Or? Okay, thank you very much also for your comments. And uh, please join me in thanking our presenters for, for coming in today. Thank you.